Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is Daniel George, founder of StepX, the fintech startup providing student finance based on future earnings rather than traditional debt. When Daniel decided to pursue an MBA, that's a graduate business management degree in case you didn't know, he realised both the life-changing quality of these top-tier courses but also the high cost. As he says, many high-potential, less wealthy candidates simply can't afford the qualifications to achieve their professional goals. After being fortunate to receive a scholarship, Daniel was committed to understand why the financial system couldn't effectively provide education finance. And in 2017, he founded StepX to solve this problem. Designed and developed with leaders from the finance industry and the UK's financial regulator, StepX enables people to pay with a share of their future earnings, giving equal opportunity to all – with the belief your career should be based on where you're capable of going and not where you've been. Daniel, hello. Thank you very much for coming here to join us today. Tell me a little bit about your life before we jump into StepX, because you, you've been around. Yeah, great to be here, Elliot. Yeah, I, I grew up in Kentish Town, but I did spend a year in the Highlands of Scotland, where I was the 19th student in a very small little town called Glenelg. And the people were lovely, but uh, they did have a, they called me the onion when I got there because there was a few very patriotic Scotsmen who used to say, what's the difference between an onion and an Englishman? You don't cry cutting up an Englishman, which was quite a <laughs> baptism of fire and an introduction to, uh, to, to the school. But, but by and large, it was wonderful. Um, so yeah, I feel really privileged, had a great upbringing. And I imagine some of that passion has probably stayed with you, but we'll find out where, where it got applied. So you spent a year in Scotland with your mum and dad? Well, my, my dad was actually a musician, so he was coming and going, recording um, songs in, in the UK, in London, and we lived in a caravan in Scotland while my mum picked vegetables on an organic farm. So it was, it was called woofing, <laughs> which has become popular nowadays, but was quite rare back then. So she'd pick vegetables, we all would, and then the farmer would give us food and accommodation for that. So it, it was fantastic. I think it's quite a rare experience from a, a London-born person on a council estate to get to go to Scotland for a year in a completely different (laughs) scenario. How old did you say you were when you were doing that? I was 10 then. Right, okay. So you you were a a part of a woofing family. (laughs) You went to the 19th student in a small school. You were the onion, and it it goes on. I mean, amazing things. And then tell me, I believe you then went to live in Australia. Yeah, I uh, I was about to go to William Ellis Secondary School. Uh, I had my brother's secondhand oversized uniform ready to go in my cupboard, and about four days before... My parents thought it'd be a great idea, and it was, to travel around Australia in a bus that they did up. So we, we flew across to, to Adelaide in Australia. We got an old coaster bus, and all of our uncles came and sort of rebuilt it so as a family we could live in it. Uh, so that stage, there was me and my two younger siblings and my parents in the bus. We, we call my, my youngest brother the, the shelf boy because actually his bed was a shelf with a little pillow on it. <laughs> and we travelled around Australia, so we went through the desert um, and then all up the east coast, and about 11 months later, my parents decided, actually, this is pretty good. We should stay here. So we stayed for 14 years. <laughs> he drops in and then we stay for 14 years. I want to just juxtapose this with the fact that then you go off and do a degree in Australia, I believe. 
Is that right? You're, you're, yeah. yeah. You do a degree in Australia, you then do an MBA, and here you are now talking to me about financing people who haven't had the opportunity to have access to money to go off and do, you know, masters and postgraduates and all, and all the rest of it. This incredibly untraditional, unacademic, if you like, beginning and an unitinerant view, you know, you're moving around, you're peripatetic all the way through that. How did you end up deciding to go a very formal route in terms of education? And then how did that lead you to the place that you are now? For some reason, I always wanted to be a doctor, but didn't really think I could do medical school for so long because my, my parents didn't have the money to support me. I was work, working 40 hours in a, in a supermarket, which was great. You get to chop fruit and <laughs> eat fantastic tropical fruit and, uh, and then stack it out on the shelves. But it was difficult to do university and work full time at the same time. Uh, so I thought medicine was a little bit too long. So instead, at school, I quite enjoyed economics. So I did economics and, and then I became an economist for the Australian government, which was great fun. But there, there turned a point where I realised all the friends I grew up with, there was a real barrier to them. I think most people, you don't really realise you're poor until you try and do uh, sort of a postgraduate course because that's the point at which you walk into a bank and say, can I have £50,000 for an MBA? And they laugh at you. And then you go to the sort of the student debt providers and they say, hey, for credit card rates of interest, we'll give you a fraction of the cost. They say, what about the rest? And they say, well, most people get their family to contribute that. Uh, and if you don't have family to contribute that, like probably 90% of the population, you just don't get that degree. And becoming a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, all of these fields require top quality education and postgraduate education by and large. Uh, and that's just completely excluded. So that was the point I thought, I want to change this system. I want to just go back to Australia for a moment. And, and you touched on being an outsider in Scotland and the, the funny little uh, the welcome that you got, which looking back is, is a warm welcome. At the time, you probably were petrified. The fact that you were a young boy, really, in Australia with your family as an outsider, do you think the outsider thing has helped you look at the world more objectively? Or is it just coincidence that you were able to do that and think about more broadly the, the notion of fairness and, and the like in terms of funding education? It's a great question. I never really thought of myself as an outsider. I just thought it's uh, it's just different situations. I felt really lucky to be able to do that and experience lots of different places and people. And uh, like Australia was great. I went from a sort of inner city council estate to suddenly a beachside paradise where you sort of you surf in the morning and <laughs> it, it was literally the sort of the pictures you draw as a kid of the Bahamas. Suddenly it's it's suddenly come to life. So yeah, it, it was fantastic. And I never really felt like an outsider. I think I sort of became a bit of a chameleon and after a few years I spoke like an Australian and most of my friends there sort of <laughs> assumed I was Australian and were quite surprised when I moved back to the UK. And all the jobs that you did before you came back to the UK, just tell me a little bit about how you think, if you could see a golden thread, what would it be? Was there anything that they had in common that led you again to this point that we're now at? Well, most of the jobs were sort of, how do I make enough money to survive and do what I want to do? So I was... Uh, I was a brickie, I was a labourer, I was um, yeah, putting rocks in high-rise buildings to in, in the flower pots, um, which was, looking back, very, very, very dangerous because we had no safety equipment at all. And I think the best job I ever had was yeah in supermarkets. I actually really enjoyed that, which is a little bit strange because obviously the business is about helping people who would otherwise be stacking shelves in a supermarket become doctors, engineers and lawyers. But I think as you get a little bit older, then then you suddenly do want a career and you do want a, a path. So after that, I went to university. I did an economics degree, became an economist for the government. 
And that was sort of driven by throughout my life, governments have helped me a lot. Society's helped us a lot. They housed us, they fed us, had free school meals as a kid. Uh, and I sort of thought, how do we help make this society better? And I thought becoming an economist for the government was a good way to do that. And then it got to a point where I thought, actually, when you're trying to describe a solution you think is really good, there was a little bit of frustration at times where politicians would say, actually, that's not the politics of the day. And I was a bit more of a naive sort of purist. I thought, well, it's good for everyone. Why don't we do it? And I thought, actually, the easiest way to, to make those solutions real was to do an MBA and actually go into business because then you can, you can affect that change directly instead of trying to influence politicians. And that was a pivotal moment, right? Because when you went to do the MBA and you realised the cost of it, it was Cranfield, wasn't it? Cranfield. Did you then at that point go, do you know what, there's a problem here. If you haven't got the money, you can't carry on. I'm going to do something about it. Or did that, was that just a personal thing? You go, how am I going to get around this for myself? At what point did you think, I'm actually going to try and solve this problem? Yeah, that was exactly it. I, was, I looked at a number of MBA programmes. I decided Cranfield was the one I wanted to go to the most. But the fees were just a complete barrier. They were astronomical to me at the time. Uh, I got really fortunate that they gave me a full scholarship. Without that, I would not have been able to go. So I'm eternally grateful to them for doing that. Uh, but when I was looking at all the student debt providers, it, it just wasn't feasible. And, and the situation hasn't changed at all. In fact, it's gotten worse. Back then, banks would give you some of the money. Now, no bank in the country will give you money to do a for, for, as a student loan. And there, there's government grants, but the government says, look, we'll give you £10,000. You say, well, what about the other £45,000? So yeah, that, that was the moment I realised actually there's this barrier to, to doing what you want to do. Even you get all the offers from all the universities you want to go to, that's not the problem. If you're, if you're capable, price is the barrier to most people in getting that qualification. And Daniel, how did that make you feel at the time? Is that a, was there a sense of injustice, a sense of anger, a bit of both, or more of a, I've just got to fix this? Yeah, I think, I think it's more sort of fascination because as an economist, you sort of, you're taught the world works in this nice system um, and then suddenly it seemed like this was a bit of a glitch in the matrix. It's like, well, finance providers are there to sort of connect capital and opportunity. And it seemed like loads of people had the opportunity to earn far more and be far more in their lives, but capital wasn't properly helping them do that. And I just, I really wanted to understand why, which is why after my MBA, I, I tried to launch this and then had to pay my rent. So decided I needed a, a job before I did it. Uh, and, and then I went into the banking world to try and understand, look, why don't banks do this today? Why is there no solution for people to fund their education in a way that's available to everyone? And now, of course, we're sitting here and we're going to get into it in a bit. Um, you're a well-funded business with a nice valuation and Daniel George has been rocking a few boats for quite a while and slowly but surely things are going to change. You'll be hearing much more from him very shortly. Right now, beginner a taster from the Mishcon Academy digital sessions. They can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Mishcon Drez, Joe Hancock and Katie Ling talk about current trends in cyber fraud and what companies need to do to protect themselves. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. I think that the main thing is to be proactive and not reactive. We've seen a lot of people will respond once they've been hit by a cyber attack, but in many ways you've lost your data or you've lost a lot of money by doing that. Whereas if you have these systems in place beforehand, then that's going to be much better practice. So as you said there, Katie, being proactive, not reactive, preparing and doing these things first. What can you do to prevent this stuff? Is there anything that can technology help us here? You know, is, is it worth kind of building the walls around our organisations higher? Any particular tools or techniques you'd recommend for people? 
Yep, definitely. And I, I think that this comes back to the basics. You know, I've urged so many people I know to just not use the same password everywhere um, and on every online service. Use a secure password. And it sounds simple, but just so many people don't do it because if one password is breached, then a criminal has access to anywhere that you've been online. But I think that also introducing two-factor authentication is really important. And just these general security checkups that people sort of normally ignore, they can be really helpful in protecting yourself. The Mishkan Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishkan.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. All our former business shapers are available for your delectation on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. My guest there is Daniel George, founder of StepX, the fintech startup, providing student finance based on future earnings rather than traditional debt. Do those words describe it? Is that it in a nutshell, Daniel? Is that how you pitch it when you're getting people to invest? Is that how you present your wares to those people looking for financing? It is. I think the um, the only difference is for the people providing the education, so universities, IT boot camps, and now we're even looking into sort of the construction, logistics industries. And for them, it's slightly different. For them, essentially, if, if you're a university, what you want more than anything is more applicants. And it's not us actually giving the money to someone. It's the university saying, instead of paying me this money up front, I'm going to price my qualification differently. I'm going to do that because I want more applicants. I want applicants from, I always say to them, look, the Nobel Prize winner on a council estate who will not become a Nobel Prize winner without your course and your help. And that's what universities want from the, the top universities. So London Business School, Cambridge, INSEAD, ESA, they're our partners, uh, Cranfield, Buckingham University. And then we've also got a whole load of other IT boot camps like the Wagon, Makers Academy, North Coders. And they all do this because they want more applicants. They do it for different reasons. Some of them say, we want more applicants because we want the best no matter where they come from. And I initially went into them, into those conversations and said, hey, poor people deserve a chance. And everyone nodded and no one did anything. Uh, and they didn't want to adopt this because they say, well, I want my money now. I don't want it in the future. But actually, we realized then what the benefit for universities and qualification providers is. If they have more applicants, they can say, well, we're going to raise the selection criteria. And once they raise the selection criteria then they have a better brand, their rankings go up, they can charge more money in future. There's a reason a Harvard MBA costs so much and people are willing to pay it and, and other courses are not. It's because they have very high standards to get in. You've got a really talented bunch of people you study with and then every single company in the world will accept a Harvard MBA and basically it gets you an interview. All universities aspire to increasing their rankings, increasing their brand, so they like those applicants and there's some universities where, and qualification providers, they actually have extra capacity. They say, I've got 100 seats in my classroom and I have enough applicants at this selection criteria to fill 60 of them. But then there's 40 empty seats. And that's a real waste because other than some sort of extra coffee and a tiny bit of the professor's time, it's essentially no cost to them to have someone sitting in that seat. So if they can get really talented people to sit in those what would otherwise be empty seats, it's really good for them. So they say, look, you can come and sit in one of those seats you don't have to pay me anything up front because you couldn't afford to. And instead, what I'll do is I'll share a little bit of the benefit this course gets to you. A little bit like a music, it's a, it's a bit like a royalty for a qualification. So you say, 
once you're earning a good salary when you graduate, I'm going to take a small share of that for the five years after you graduate. And that's my payment for your course. And if you earn loads of money and this degree gets you a great job, you're going to pay me a bit more. But if this degree doesn't get you a good job, then you don't have to pay anything sometimes or, or less. Uh, and I think that's the way this should work because it means if you're a qualification provider with a good course, then you're going to get paid. If you're not, you're not going to get paid. And it takes the burden from the student onto the university. What I love about the way you just described it is it's kind of a, an economics thesis. <laughs> I mean, in a good way. What I mean is you, but you, if you look at what drives the economic engine of universities and, and academic establishments, that is it, in a nutshell, what you've just said. is precisely that. What really fascinates me, though, is the following. You started when you, you said, you know, I grew up on a council estate. I could never have imagined living on the beach and all that. And these, these things are amazing. By the way, no one can imagine living on the beach, right? But you're, in your particular thing, I've, I've, I've interviewed many people who've, whose lives have begun in council estates. I don't think it's a coincidence they go off and do stuff. I don't think, and of course it's harder and the consequences of failure are higher and, and all of that and the, the challenges are bigger. But that beginning of life for you, do you think, although you have articulated in economic terms, do you still think it comes from the sociological beginning of your life and the way that you viewed the world? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's, you, you really have a sort of a sense of community when you grow up, when, when you don't have much money. Um, your entertainment is playing football with a with an old leathery ball that you found on the railway tracks on a sort of patch of concrete with holes in it with all of your friends. Uh, and that really bonds you together, I think. So there's definitely that sense of, look, you want to have the people that you grew up with, which is the majority of people in the world. Uh, there's very few who are wealthy enough to afford £100,000 for an MBA. You want to lift those people up and, and you want them to do well and be all they can be. And it hurts you when you see that they can't. So that was absolutely one of the drivers. Uh, and funnily enough, we have some very interesting data now because people have graduated, they're repaying a share of earnings. And people from really poor backgrounds who actually get into places like Oxford and Cambridge and LBS, they do really, really well when they graduate, far better than the average. And it's not because poor people are smarter than rich people. It's because some of the stories they tell us, like there, there was one person who was the only person from his secondary school to ever go to a top university. Uh, and he told us stories that, look, there were gangs out the front of his school, there was people getting stabbed, and he managed to avoid all of that. And he still got an offer from one of the best universities in the country to come and do a degree. And if you go to Eton and you, you have tutors and you're sort of trained sometimes to pass those exams, he had none of that. He had to work a job part-time, he had to help feed his, his family and, and, and contribute to the sort of household bills, and he still got into one of the best universities in the land. And that means this is someone with a lot of talent. He was probably one in 10,000. So the applications you get from people who actually go through that process and then they're sitting there next to people who have been trained to pass those exams and have had all of the benefit of, of a wealthier upbringing, they're really, really high potential people. The biggest barrier to him was he just couldn't afford £50,000 and no bank would give him that money. So we, we were really fortunate we we were able to provide this option so he could pay with a share of his future earnings. He's now graduated. He's got a great job. Actually, he did a law degree at, um, at Oxford and he's now earning a very good salary at a top law firm. And I'm sure he's going to go on to, to great things. But he said his mum wept when she learned that he could go to a university like that and do that kind of course. Uh, and, and it's great hearing the stories of people who sort of said, look, they had to share bathwater with their siblings to save on energy bills. And they never wanted to take out debt because they saw the damage of having to put coins into a gas meter did to their parents. But this type of finance, it means, well, if they earn a lot, they pay. If they don't, they don't. It doesn't put them into the same financial difficulty as debt. So 
for me, this was just a no-brainer. I didn't understand why it didn't exist already. There's a bit in this, right, beyond the economics and the sociology, which is just graft. And the graft that I, as I did my research looking into this, was the ability that you have had to navigate the regulatory landscape, to work with, and you mentioned you worked at NatWest and you did various other finance jobs to see what, what the thing was inside, this thing called the financial system. But how did you manage to navigate, I guess, through talking to the regulator, the FCA, working with individuals who helped educate you in terms of what was possible, what wasn't? Because that is no mean feat. Just help me understand a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm not actually sure, to be honest, in hindsight. I think um, I think people sort of gravitated towards this solution because it wasn't just, hey, I've got a great idea and I want to make loads of money from it. It was, hey, there's lots of people in this world who need this solution and you should help me make it a reality. So we had sort of leaders from the financial industry. We had the regulator themselves. They all sort of came together and said, we need to make this a reality because we can see how it's good for society. It's good for the, the people, the students, and it's also good for the university. So let's try and make a way for this to become a reality. And in the beginning, I thought, okay, three to six months, we'll have this done. Two and a half years later, it was finally done. And we built a completely new framework for this type of product. So it took a lot longer than than I thought it would. Uh, and, and there were definitely times, the first time the regulator said no, they said no twice before we finally got it approved. Uh, and we had a couple of smaller law firms helping us out in the beginning who tried for a few months and then threw their hands in the air and said, this is impossible. And I think just knowing that this makes logical sense and I know there's people that this would help got us through that. Uh, and there were definitely times I thought, yeah, this is tough and you sort of, you, you get some hammer blows, but then you just think back to all the people who would have been better off if this would have existed that you know, and we thought this has to be a reality. So yeah, <laughs> that basically. <laughs> but, but someone in it who's done it and come through the other side, any kind of structural change, if there was a, a top tip, apart from I assume tenacity and just sheer bloody mindedness, right? I imagine that's a big part of this, Daniel. What else would you say if you were to look back were the, the secrets of the success of this incredibly difficult thing? And I've, I've, I've met loads of people who have tried to make change happen. Change is fundamentally what entrepreneurship is all about in, in many ways. Change through regulation is kind of the nightmarish sweet spot where you have to, you know, you literally have to change the framework, as you said, to make your idea work. What would you say to people if they're in it or thinking about doing it? I think for a start, the, the FCA, so the UK's financial regulator, did a phenomenal job. Um, without them, this would have been impossible. They're the only regulator in the world to have a framework for this product. Uh, and they worked with us to get this, to make this a reality. Um, they we went through the, the, the FCA Project Innovate, which is where you get the regulator to help you build something which is in the national interests. And I don't know of any other country in the world that has that type of program with their regulator. So I think a lot of the credit needs to go to the regulator and, uh, and the UK but I think it's sort of just take it one step at a time. If you think of these are all the steps I need to get there, you're probably going to give up. But if you just think, okay, this is the next step I need to do to make this a reality, you sort of somehow <laughs> blindly walk your way through until you get to the end. He's still smiling, by the way, which is quite a thing after <laughs> having done what he's done. Final chat coming up with Daniel George and there's some new music from Ezra Collective. That's in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Daniel George is my business shaper just for a little bit longer. So you're kind of five years into this journey, Daniel, although I, the way I see it is the journey began a long, 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 long time ago, but it's led you to this point of actually addressing 
as you said, a kind of an, an economic conundrum and a social injustice and so on and so forth. Where do you see this going? How big can it be? At the moment, I think we're in the hundreds of people you've helped. Can this be a global idea? You touched on the fact that, you know, credit to the UK and to the innovation that's within the, the system over here. Are you already talking internationally? Because this is not, you know, you, and you, you touched on Harvard being a very expensive place to study in, obviously, because it's got, there's a lot of demand for it. What do you think is possible for you? I think this is the way education should be priced. So I think it should be universities saying, we don't need you to go and find a financial provider. We select the students, we train them, and usually we help place them in jobs as well. So we're going to take that risk. We're going to accept, you're not going to pay us up front if you don't want to. If you have the funds, of course, that's good. But if not, you can just pay us a share of what you earn in the future. And then when you go and get that higher job, once you graduate, we're then going to take a share of that. And if you don't get a good job, that's fine. You're going to pay less or nothing for the degree because it didn't get you to where you where we told you it would get you. We have no real outbound sales. Um, we had Cranfield University was the first to adopt this for masters and then followed by LBS and University of Buckingham is the first one to say we're going to do this for undergraduate students and then a whole load of IT boot camps, Caps Lock, the Wagon Makers Academy. They've all said this is something that we want to deploy. And then from that, we've had a whole load of inbound requests um, from other education institutions who've seen it. So it's just spread through word of mouth so far. So for us, the big opportunity now is to say, we're going to provide this infrastructure. So we're going to provide the ability for all these education providers, initially across the UK and EU, to let students come and, and pay with a share of their earnings. But absolutely, you touched on the US, it's by far the biggest education market in the world. Uh, and there is plans to get there eventually, but we're very focused at the moment on the UK and the EU because of something called open banking regulation. So you can see what people are earning through their bank transactions. And that only exists in the UK and EU today. And in terms of you, Daniel, obviously now the business is growing. How many people are currently working in, in StepX? So currently there's 12 people in StepX and we've got a few open roles. That we're, we're, we're hiring more people. And the technology team is, is significantly growing because it's, it's become a technology product. Yeah. And are you comfortable in your own skin with regard to where the leadership piece needs to go? You're going to be scaling, obviously. There's the tech, as you said, it's going to become a, a fundamentally a technology business underneath the, the bonnet. Do you go, that's fine, I'm here, there's no, there's no issue. Some people kind of get to a point and they go, this isn't for me, I can see the scale is going to be too rapid. It doesn't strike me that's an issue at the moment for you. You, you, you seem very happy where things are going. It's, it's by far my favourite job. I feel really privileged to be able to to work at StepX. Um, I think someone told me once that it's much better to be lucky than smart. And I, I think that's true. So we got very lucky to be able to hire really good people who are far smarter than I am in technology, operations, sales. So, so yeah, I can just do <laughs> my favourite job in the world while people far more capable and better than I actually make sure the business is in, is in really good shape. It's been really nice talking to you, and it is um, what I love about the idea is it's a, it's a game it's a proper game changer. I mean, this does re-engineer, re rewire the structure itself, which will hopefully enable many many thousands of people over the, the coming years to enjoy the the benefits of a future education. And you're challenging the universities economically as well. I guess their model's going to need to change if they're looking at future earnings rather than current cash. But I'm sure they're going to get to that and work that one out. Um, great to talk to you. Just before I let you disappear, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? So I'd, I'd like the song to be Harder Than The Rich Man Says. Uh, and there's, there's sort of two stories. The first one, I think, uh, it, it really nicely displays what we, the problem that we're solving. So it's about someone from a poor background who gets told, hey, it's easy to be a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. 
comes to the city, so London, and finds that it's much, much more difficult than his richer friend said. Uh, and actually the song ends saying, um, I'm going to tell my son not to do this because it's, it's far harder. And then the personal story is I'm actually that son. So this was written by my father and sung by him with my uncle as well, um, playing the guitar. And that was 30 years ago he, he released this song. And luckily he didn't stand by that. He really valued education. He was probably overly, he was playing sort of times tables, audio cassettes as we went to sleep, making us do men's puzzles and play chess. So he really set us up very well. So I think it very well displays the problem we're solving. And, and luckily now, I think it is hopefully a little bit less hard than the rich man says for people from less wealthy backgrounds. But there's another underlying story of here as well. So once upon a time, my father and uncle were in a recording studio recording this song and Led Zeppelin's tour manager came past. And Led Zeppelin's tour manager really liked this song. And he said, I'll take your card, give me a copy of it. And then a few months later, he called them up uh, and he said, Jimmy would like to jam with you. He heard your song. So Jimmy Page, it was one of my, my, my father and uncle's idols. He's probably one of the best guitarists ever. And my dad always thought, actually, I'm not ready. And he never called the guy back. So it, it was an answering machine message. He still has it to this day of, hey, Jimmy wants to jam with you in his studio. And who knows where that would have led. And he just felt, I'm not ready. It's too overwhelming. I'll do it one day. And I think it, it really gave me the, um, it, it sort of showed me that you just have to do what you want to do in life. Even if you don't feel completely prepared and ready, sometimes you just have to go for it and do it. And at StepX, many times I felt like that, like, how can I go to the regulator and propose a completely new framework? Sometimes you just have to say, look, let's just do it and see what happens. That was Harder Than The Rich Man Says from The Great Unknown, the song choice of my business shaper today, Daniel George. I loved how he, in a quintessential entrepreneurial manner, was challenging and is challenging the status quo. It doesn't have to be the way it is. I loved his personal investment. The fact that he said it hurt that people weren't getting the education that they deserved underpins his approach to life and making this happen. And finally, as he said of his song choice, sometimes you've just got to not question yourself and you've got to go for it. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.